Good morning. I usually don't get claps before I start. So thanks. The uh, most important question is, what will you do with Jesus? Of course, that question is not widely recognized as the most important question, but it is. I think you have two choices, and those two choices are reflected in the text we're looking at today in John chapter 10. Now, people like to think there are some other options, but I think anyone who actually considers Jesus is left with just these two. The world wants a a Jesus that isn't Jesus, that isn't the guy who actually was, is, and is to come. The world wants a nice Jesus, but Jesus is not nice. He loves us. If we are one of his, he cares for us with great tenderness and affection. But the nice Jesus that the world wants does not exist. They want a Jesus who's, you know, like a good moral example for all of us to follow. A Jesus is who is tolerant of those who reject him. Uh, Jesus who's uh, basically a good Buddhist. That's not the Jesus that is. And there's, in this text, people are driven by confronting the actual Jesus. People are driven to one of two places. They are his sheep who hear his voice and follow him, believing in him, trusting him, knowing him, understanding that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. And there are those who pick up stones. If you deal with the actual Jesus, those are your options. You know him, follow him, believe in him, see God in him, see him to be the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away your sin, or you pick up stones. He just didn't leave the middle open. And that is where we start in this text and we're 
continuing from where we left off a couple weeks ago in John chapter 10, when Jesus said, in answer to this challenge, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, Jesus answered them, I told you, this is John chapter 10, verse 20, got a squint, five. The numbers in this Bible are tiny. Jesus answered them, I told you. Now we might recall back in chapter 5, he said, I mean he couldn't have said it more plainly. He said, I told you, you don't believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I think, wow, if you are one of his sheep, this is the most fantastic assurance the promise of the Son of God that he has a hold of you, whether you have a hold of him or not at any given moment. That if you are his, he cares for you. And he holds on to you. And you cannot be stolen from him. And then he concludes that statement with this. I and the Father are one. Now, the people he was talking to, well, they're not his sheep, so they don't hear him very well. All they hear is that last thing, I and the Father are one. So, the next sentence is, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. So Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now this is in the follow-up argument after the healing of the man born blind. Now you cannot possibly organize your mind to claim that the giving sight to a man who has never had it his whole life is not a good thing. So he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. So when Jesus heals someone, he always says this throughout the whole book of John. I'm not doing anything except what I see the Father doing. I'm only doing what he tells me to do because he's doing it and I'm doing it with him. That would apply in this case. For which of these good works are you going to stone me? He's driving them back to their own argument, which they were having among themselves, is how does he do this? 
maybe has a demon. Well, how could someone with a demon do something like, do this in particular? They're arguing about whether this is a good work of God or some other power. Which of these good works are you going to stone me for? And they answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You are insulting God. That's why we're stoning you. Now, Jesus says in that passage we read from a couple weeks back, says quite clearly, I am the Christ. They say, are you the Christ? He says, that's what I've been telling you and showing you. He says, I am the Christ. This is clearly attested. I've said it and I've demonstrated it. You don't believe your own eyes. When this man who was born blind was healed, you saw it was him. You tested and found that it was him. What you did was throw him out of the synagogue rather than recognize me. You don't believe your own eyes because you're blind. Remember, we're playing with the whole idea of sight and blindness in this text. And you are not part of my flock. I know my sheep, he says. My sheep know me. They are secure in my hand. They are secure in my Father's hand. I give them eternal life. I and my Father are one. They picked up stones to stone him. He's saying, look, you ask me a question. Here's the answer. I've shown you many good works. Where are these works from? From the Father. And they say, you make yourself God. Now, what's funny is, he doesn't argue with them about that. Well, actually, that's not funny. Of course he doesn't, because he is God. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Wow, there's something we've got to figure out. What's he talking about? Well, they know what he's talking about. He's quoting to them from the Psalms, Psalm 82.6 to be specific. Why don't we just look at it? If you've got a Bible, you can look at it with me. Psalm 82. Jesus is making an argument that is uh, what we call an argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay? We'll come back to that. Psalm 82. There's a lot of psalms. Here we go. Here's Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. 
He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute because the weak rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said... You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. I'm glad I don't have to preach that psalm to you today. That's complicated, but in the middle of it is this statement that Jesus is quoting. And his point is, look, right there in the Bible, God says... To people, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now Jesus tells us who those people are. You'll notice, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came. The people who received the word of God are in this psalm called sons of God. That would be the nation of Israel especially the faithful of the nation of Israel. Okay, so he's making a point. He says, look, right there in the Bible that you all honor so much, it says, sons of God. And it's not, it's talking about the people who are the recipients of the word of God. And then he compares those people to himself. Those people are the people who received the word, those to whom the word of God came. Jesus is not just one of those to whom the word of God came. Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. Here in the book of John, the word of God himself, and he, he says it like this in this text, the him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and is the exhibition of God himself. It's all there in chapter 1 of the book of John. And Jesus says, look, I'm not just one of those guys that the psalmist called the sons of God. I'm the son of God. In Luke chapter 3, you have a genealogy of Jesus, and it starts with Jesus. In Matthew, the genealogy starts with David and goes from David down to Jesus. In Luke, the genealogy starts with Jesus, and it uses the expression son of Son of, son of, Jesus, son of, Joseph, I think it says, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of. You know, it goes all the way back to Adam. And it says, son of Adam, son of God. See, Adam is the failed son of God, and Jesus is the successful son of God. 
The, re- the saving son, the restoring son. If you look at uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, you know, they, Adam and Eve had at least three sons, no doubt, many more. But in any case, they had Cain and Abel, right? And Cain killed Abel, and then Cain was banished. Now what do we do? Well, there's another son. And this is at the beginning of Genesis chapter 5 when Seth is born. And in Genesis chapter 5, it says in verse 3 that Adam bore a son. The, the sons, he's the son of Adam in his own likeness and image. It uses the same language that God uses for Adam and Eve to talk about the sonship of Seth according to his likeness in his image. You see, likeness and image are what are words of sonship. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of God, or when he calls his, his uh, believing people the sons of God. And of course this uh, title will be granted to all of us who believe in Christ. We're adopted, we're his sons, we're born again, his children here in the book of John. Sons of God. This has to do with uh, bearing some likeness to God, some fellowship with God that is reflected so that God's image shows in my life or yours. Now the person who absolutely epitomizes that reality is Jesus Christ, who is called the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews it says he is the exact representation of his being. He is the eternal Son of God made flesh so as to put the actual person of God on display among us. Son of God. Of course, the, ter- the phrase Son of God is also a messianic term in Jewish prophecy in the Old Testament. So when he says, so you're going to... Stone me because I called myself the son of God. What that means is when he says I'm the son of God, they don't believe it. He's consecrated by the father sent into the world. He's not just a son of God. He's the son of God. So, you're going to stone me. Now, I said this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, the Bible itself calls people the Son of God, and they have this status. They're the ones who received the Word of God in faith. And 
I'm not just that. I am the actual son of God, the actual one who was consecrated in heaven, set apart and sent. Now you and I have received the word of God. In that sense, we are sons of God. But we did not exist as sons of God in heaven and get set apart and sent into this world. He's the son of God on a whole nother level. And he said, look, if you can call them sons of God and it's not blasphemy, certainly you can call the son of God the son of God and it's not blasphemy. This didn't solve their problem. He said, he goes on. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my father... Oh, I can imagine them getting really annoyed that he keeps calling God my father. Even after they said, look, here are the rocks, man. He says, if the works I do are not clearly the works of the father, of my father, then don't believe that. If the works I do are, then you don't have to take my word for it. The works of Jesus are clearly the works of God. They've already had this conversation, right? That's a big argument. Oh, he's demon-possessed. No, how could anyone do this except if it was God? says, look, you can believe the works even if you don't believe my own testimony about myself. Now, this question confronts us today. We are not eyewitnesses to this healing of this blind man or to the previous healing of the uh, paralytic at the pool or the water turning to wine, or the feeding of the 5,000, or the walking on water. All of these things have happened already in the book of John. We didn't see those things. We have a historical record of those things. Do we believe? Now here's something we have that they didn't have. The resurrection. The man Jesus was killed, put in a tomb, wrapped up, and put in a tomb, sealed in. And a couple of days later, he came out. The same man, flesh and blood, If that is not a work of God, I don't know what is. Here in the very next chapter, his very good friend Lazarus is going to suddenly die. 
Well, first he's going to get sick, and Jesus is going to go, yeah, we'll give it a couple of days. Why? Because he's going to die. Why? Because Jesus is going to go over there, mourn with those who've lost their brother, and then say to Lazarus, who is dead, Lazarus, come on out. And Lazarus is going to come out. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to throw him out. I mean, if we thought the blind man thing was amazing, come on. The question is, do you believe? Now, the other thing we have that they didn't have, the other great work of the Lord Jesus Christ that is from the Father is the very existence of the body of Christ in this world today. <clears throat> you cannot account for the church apart from the divinity of Jesus Christ. I wish I had a lot of time to elaborate on that, but especially the third and fourth century church, you, you, you just can't see why it would even exist if Jesus did not actually rise from the dead and prove who he was. So if the word of Christ to say I am the Christ the son of the living God if we can't just take him at his word we have these great works now if we're one of his we see it and we go yeah there it is these guys didn't see it <clears throat> he says he goes on believe the works that you may know and understand. That's interesting, you know. You notice that believing comes before knowing? I'm not sure quite exactly what to make of that, but those who believe come to understand. And it's interesting because this is using, it's repeating two different forms of the same word to know, to know. And so in English, we say, know and understand. We could say, to know and know. In the first case, it's an aorist tense. Sorry, little grammar here. It's an aorist tense, which is a, like a simple past tense or a, a completed action word. It's saying, to come to know, to learn. You've learned. And the second use is a present tense. So now you understand. You've come to know, so you understand. It's like in the Old Testament, in the Jewish literature, they'd say something like, knowing you will know. It's a sort of Hebrew repetition to emphasize You will become confident in this reality. And this is grounded in personal faith. His sheep 
hear his voice and follow because knowing they know because they trust him this is not really about believing a bunch of propositions uh, it's not really about believing a certain set of doctrine though those things are very important I always worry whenever I start talking like this that people think oh we don't need to know theology and doctrine no you do but the faith that we're talking about here is faith in a person and his true identity the son of the living God. <clears throat> what is it that we will know and understand? <clears throat> he says it here. Sorry. We will understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is another way of saying what he said that they that caused them to pick up the stones in the first place. He said, I and the Father are one. And here he's saying it again another way. The Father is in me. Everything you see me do, he keeps on saying this in the book of John. He finds another way to say it here. The Father is in me. Whatever you see me do is the Father acting in this world in, my, in me, through me. He is the agent of God in his entire life in this world. In every respect. He says, I say what he gives me to say. He says, at the beginning, John says, he is the word of God. He doesn't just tell us the word of God. He is the word of God. The Father is in me. If I speak, the Father's speaking. If I act, the Father's acting in me. And I am in him. We're one. We're one. Uh, I can't wait till we get to chapter 17. <laughs> I have to give you a bit of a preview now because I just can't stand it. Because in chapter 17, in the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, that prayer that will and must be answered in the affirmative, this I am in him and he's in me is extended to those who believe. We will be one just as they are one. I don't even know what that means, but it is fantastic. The same sort of oneness that exists in the triune God will come to full reality in the body of Christ, the church. And we will be one with him and he will be in us and we will be in him just like this. And in those days, you and I, when we speak, we speak from the heart of God like Jesus did in this case. When we act, it will be an expression of the nature of God. We will be his true image bearers 
as John says in the book of 1 John, we will be like him because we'll see him for real. You cannot even imagine how good that will be. And he says it. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. Again, they sought to arrest him. Didn't solve their problem. He says, look. He, he gets on board and he says, look, could I do this if it wasn't God? It is God in me and me in him. We are one. They can't stand it. There's no middle ground. If someone says that, I, God is in me and I am in God. If someone says that and it's not true, they are either bad or crazy. These guys say bad. They don't see it. They don't believe it. They judge him to be evil. We've either got to stone him or put him away or embrace him as our heaven-sent savior. Those are the only options. You cannot have Jesus as a good guy who may be a good example for you to follow when you feel like it. Or when you judge him to be a satisfactory model. That Jesus is not available to you in this man described in the scriptures. You've either got to believe, follow, hear, follow, know, understand that he is that the Father is in him and that he is in the Father, that they are one, that he is the ever-living Son of God, or you better pick up a stone. These guys made their choice. They picked up a stone. In the world today, the option of the pretty good guy, Jesus, is evaporating before our eyes. Because the world knows. And you will find, as you represent him in this world, people are going to start picking up rocks. They're no longer going to tolerate the intolerant Jesus. You can see it all around us. We love people anyway. We demonstrate the love we have experienced anyway. We show the works of God in our own heart, in the fellowship of our community, in the body of Christ. We show it, we show it, we show it, and most people will not see it, and they will resent it. Now, <clears throat> they got ready to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. I regard that as miraculous, frankly. <laughs> Somehow, he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan 
to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained, and many came to find him. Interesting. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow. <laughs> many came to, find, came to him, and they said, John did no sign. Everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Jesus is a divisive person. There are those who are trying to arrest him, picking up stones, and there are those who find him and believe. What was it that John said about him that's true? They, they, they give this testimony, everything that John said about him was true. So I thought, hmm, maybe I should go look up what John said about him. That'd be, that'd be interesting. Here's what John said about him. This is back in chapter 3, I want to say. Or one, yeah, one of those early chapters. Should have written it down. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> the announcement of our redemption and salvation in the man Jesus, the Lamb of God. How interesting that the Lamb is the good shepherd and the other lambs hear and follow. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, about Jesus, I saw the Spirit descend upon him. And God had told me beforehand that the one you see the Spirit descend upon is the one. I saw the Spirit dis descend upon him. He went on, he said, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I'm baptizing with water Jesus is going to bring a whole nother level of baptism into the picture here. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Today, in the loving fellowship of the body of Christ, we experience the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Are you over that? If I say to you the spirit of the eternal God, the third person of the Trinity, dwells in you and among us, is your response something like, yeah, I've heard that? That's insane, people. The, the God himself is in you. You should fall down on the floor and... I don't know. It's the most stunning possible reality. You think, well, I don't really feel it very much. Okay. It's still true. Even when you don't feel it. And sometimes it will empower you to do something you never thought possible. Go somewhere, talk to someone, testify of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his apostles, hey, you know, don't, don't take too many notes when they haul you before the courts for 
trusting in me, the Spirit will give you the words. Have you had that experience? Someone brings you a question and you give them an answer and later you're like, where did that come from? The Spirit just brought to mind some scripture you know or heard once or some wisdom that you have no idea where it came from. Jesus gives the spirit according to John. And here's the most important thing he said. I'm quoting now. This is what John said about Jesus. This is the son of God. That's why it's on the end of this chapter. This little reminder. Everything John said about him is true. These people saw it. Why? They're his sheep. They hear his voice. They follow. They see him to be who he is, the son of God, and they believe in him. And they know and understand that the father is in him and that he is in the father. We are confronted with the same choice today. That or pick up stones. It could be that you're here this morning and you've never really been confronted with that decision in any direct way. So I ask you, do you hear his voice? Will you follow? Will you see that everything John said about him is true and believe? That's the question. We are, in general, in the church, the people who hear, follow, believe, know, understand. We see our great shepherd. And what we do every week is celebrate his arrival in this world, his sacrifice for our sin. He's the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. My sin is dealt with. He and the Father have a tight grip on me. So I am assured that he will give me eternal life, that he has given me eternal life, that I will never perish, and that he will raise me up on the last day. And I have confidence and power to live in obedient reflection of this love because it is absolutely guaranteed by the man himself. It's not something I have to sustain. It's something he has given. It's a gift from the beginning. It's still a gift today. It will be a gift all the way to the resurrection. And so operating from that position, from a secure place, from the assurance of his promise, not my performance, his promise. I know he will bring me home in the end. This enables me to be bold. This enables me to be clear. I don't expect the world to like it, 
but I'm going to love them anyway. I want to follow this shepherd. I want to be his sheep. I want to stick with his flock. And I want us to represent the greatness of our Savior in this world. Little stuff, you know, just being a normal person in the world, but a normal person who knows the love of Christ. Sometimes people say what, what you want is for, is for people to love Christ. <clears throat> Something comes before that. He loved you. While you were still sinners, God demonstrates his love. While you were his worst enemy, he demonstrates his love by giving his son a sacrifice for your sin. Christ died for our sins. That's the thing to focus on. If you try to work up your love for him, that goes nowhere. If you dwell on his love for you, your love for him will just naturally follow. And it will also be reflected on everyone around you. The Father's in him, he's in the Father, and he has prayed that this reality would be true in our lives as well. And to whatever extent we see him, we will be like him, even now. In 1 John he says, we don't know what we're going to be, but this we do know. When he comes, when we see him, We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And then he adds this. And everyone who knows this purifies himself now. In other words, that vision of Christ that produces Christ-likeness is available to us maybe through the dim glass, but it's available to us now. Do we fix our eyes on our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? When we are <clears throat> in this text, are we one of the many who came to him and said everything John says about him is true and believed? I hope so. I want to encourage you to gaze on the beauty of the Son of God. Like Hebrews says, fix your eyes on him. As we come here each week, this is my goal. <laughs> Every time, all the time, for us to say, oh, Jesus. What a fantastic Savior. That's the whole thing. Father, we give you thanks. Thank you for the consecration, for the sending of your son. Lord, I, I pray that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, this will be our constant focus, our constant source of joy, our constant assurance 
for your grace and a reflection of that grace in the world around us, especially with each other. Father, we ask these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.